Welcome to All Rings Considered. This is episode eight of our latest series, A Lord of the Rings Read-Through. Today we're covering book one, chapter eight, Fog on the Barrow Downs. I'm Charlie, and with me is Pip. Welcome, Pip. Hi. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Charlie. Yeah, we are back. Last week we were in the same room together uh, again uh, for like the second time, I think, this podcast. We were actually able to actually get together in person. Which Second is time I've seen you in person. It's been just ever. A yeah, hell of a ride. Yeah. Uh, but we are back now in separate places and talking about Chapter 8. Definitely one of the more interesting chapters of the book, actually. And let me just give you a summary here, which I, uh, as always, I stole from cliffsnotes.com. But I like, I like their succinctness, so that's why I'm going with it. So, Chapter 8, Fog on the Barrow Downs. Tom Bombadil sends the hobbits north from his house along the Barrow Downs, but they quickly lose their bearings when fog rolls in. A white captures Frodo, and he wakes to find himself inside the barrow, where the white is preparing to kill his unconscious friends. Terrified and desperate, Frodo draws upon unexpected resources, attacking the white and singing a charm Tom had given the hobbits. Tom breaks open the barrow and gives each hobbit a knife from the white's hoard, then leads them safely to the road. And that's their summary. And that's that's more or less what happened. More or less. I, I don't understand why they say Frodo draws upon unexpected resources. I, I didn't feel like they were wholly unexpected, but okay. Uh, sure. <laughs> well, let's get into it. Number one, Charlie, uh, you mentioned earlier that Tolkien's favorite word uh, you believed was pale. <laughs> Yes. Um, and oh, right, in right this off chapter, first we page, get right? pale after pale after pale. Yeah. Uh, yeah, actually, 12 times. Oh, you count. Do you count curious. it? I did. Uh, oh, my God. So, um, but that, uh, you know, that aside, I actually think this chapter is one of the best written chapters. I think the language in this chapter, I think the imagery used is really one of my favorites in the book. Yeah. I, I think it's. I'm not sure I would say it's one of my favorites, but it stands out to me anytime I read the book because it, I think it's differently written than a lot of chapters, particularly when they have their picnic lunch and they fall asleep and everything from like them falling asleep through the barrows until they're outside of the barrows to me is something something's a little different about the writing on it. Did you catch the line where they're having their picnic lunch thing on the barrow? Or on one of the downs, I guess. And it says, Riding over the hills and eating their fill, the warm sun and the scent of turf, lying a little too long, stretching out their legs and looking at the sky above their noses. These things are, perhaps, enough to explain what happened. However that may be, they woke suddenly and uncomfortably from a sleep they had never meant to take. And from there it just goes into the surreal. They've woken up and it's all foggy and they can't see anything. Absolutely. Something I, about... I love that picture too. Yeah. Of they have the the stone in the middle of the downs, and they're there, and it's it's noon, and everything's great and sunny, and they're optimistic, and they have this nap, and just that feeling of when they wake up, and the the, the shadow of the stone is long and pointed, and just that immediate sense of how how foreboding that long shadow is suddenly. Great image in this chapter. Yeah, but I guess what struck me right away, I actually have a lot to say about that that stone in its shadow but in that line i just read that that little aside there of these things are perhaps enough to explain what happened however that may be and then it goes on it's it's sort of we talked before about tolkien's narrative asides in the book but even this one seems a little unusual 
uh, yeah, for he him. does in this chapter quite a bit. Uh, it's more on uh, more explicitly telling a story like it has the narrator speaking to the reader. But I mean, also there's an interesting the narrator speaking to the reader. But we've seen that before. What's striking here is that the narrator speaks to the reader and all of a sudden goes into this mode of, "Oh, I'm not going to tell you what's happening entirely." Mm-hmm. These things are perhaps enough to explain what happened. Not, you know, these things are what made it happen. Almost all of a sudden, you're not on stable or steady ground. Even when you're talking with a narrator, everything's up for up for debate here. Well, I have a few things I can say about the the landscape here, and as well as again that stone monument you mentioned a second ago. But I, well, that's I, what you studied, right? That's was some of the subject of your uh, research. In yeah, yeah. When I was uh, in graduate school, my big passion was sort of perceptions of landscape within medieval literature, and some of the most interesting perceptions I thought were in Old English or Anglo-Saxon literature, so the, the literature of the peoples who lived in England. Uh, in the Middle Ages, prior to the Norman conquest, so prior to the French-speaking peoples came and conquered the uh, the, the kingdoms. Yeah, I, I was very interested in their literature as well as any perceptions of landscape, uh, both in their literature as well as other cultures' literatures. But a couple of things stand out to me here then. This whole uh, setting of the Downs, it's very, uh, uh, it's like a Celtic kind of setting. By that I mean to say, uh, when the Anglo-Saxons wrote about their England and they described the kind of scenery they were in, there would be both the the Roman scenery that was before them, so the ruins of these great big cities, and the Celtic scenery. What you see a lot in Book 1 of The Lord of the Rings is a lot of uh, Celtic-esque descriptions, and not very many Roman-esque ones, which I think is interesting. So it's almost as though the hobbits are wandering through uh, an England that a, a kind of England that has been affected by the Celts and the native Britons, but not by the Romans. I mean, you don't really see much the effect of oh, there's these crumbling big cities everywhere. There are some ruins, but even when we get to places like Weathertop in, in chapters to come, they're not really much left. They're, they're really kind of gone. And but the, the the image of these downs and these barrows with stone monuments very Celtic there and very much something the Anglo-Saxons would have seen in their landscapes, right? As far as the people who came before them. And these things are still in England today, of course, too, right? But on that note, I'm not sure right right now if I'm ready to tease out why Tolkien would have them walk through the Celtic countryside without a Roman countryside as well. That's interesting to point out. Yeah. um, But regardless, these standing stones, it mentions a lot. So these are really these would be really common sort of landmarks. They're common landmarks today in England, and they definitely would have been common in the Middle Ages with the Anglo Saxons. And there's a really good article by a couple of scholars uh, named Reynolds and Langlands. They wrote this this article that I just found I fell in love with in graduate school, and I just used it as a springboard for all my research. Uh, where they talked about I'm sorry, the title of the article was "Travel as Communication." And it was talking about how Anglo-Saxon peoples would have traveled across the land. And when they did so, they had to make use of particular communicative landmarks that often were man-made, 
So we're talking about erected monuments. And often they would have been like these stone kind of monuments and stuff. Reynolds and Langlands find a lot of interesting conclusions there because they, they say like we can look at um, the placement of some of these, say, an erected uh, series of crosses, of stone crosses. Uh, they'd be put on top of a hill. And, you know, they had at least one instance of they're on top of a hill. If you're on the road, you see one and it kind of leads you, leads your eye to the next one. And if you follow them, they sort of show you the way to safety or shelter. And what strikes me then here is the hobbits are in the downs. They're among these barrows, Celtic, right? They had these standing stones and... They are a kind of landmark, right? And Tolkien even teases this out. So he says about um, he says about the the big one that you mentioned earlier. He describes it as shapeless and yet significant, like a landmark or a guarding finger, or more like a warning. One again, actually, that's kind of a curiously written line, a little different than we've seen in Tolkien it's very like unsteady I mean like you I had that one mark too yeah yeah it's like questioning like what is reality here like is it this or is it that it's not really clear but note this that 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 monument he's describing is on top of a, a hill right it's a guiding landmark of some kind but Tolkien says it's also kind of like a warning um, and also oh, go ahead. oh sorry yeah but there's just and I know I've gone on way too long about this but this is uh, uh this is why I get to host a podcast um <laughs> immediately what came to my mind is something I wrote a lot. I actually wrote a lot about this. That in Beowulf, you have a scene where the heroes go on top of a cliff and see a kind of... They go on top of a cliff and they see placed there is a, the severed head of one of their friends. And I argued, based on some of the language here, that this may in fact have a sort of sort of sadistic parody value of what an Anglo-Saxon would have seen, like as opposed to instead of crosses on a hill leading to safety, they saw this severed head, and it actually led them to danger. It was leading them to a monster's den, and so it was trying to play with that, right? That uh, a, a kind of a, a communicative landmark that communicates something bad, and I think you see that here. I mean, Tolkien just calls it. This is more like a warning. What this monument is. Yeah, I, I definitely see that. Um, I was going to ask you, um, because you're describing these as positive uh, landmarks in order to get from place to place to lead you to safety, um, the stones are also described as uh, jagged teeth. Right. Um, and they're, you know, the view is disquieting, so they just turned away from this view of these, these teeth coming out of the ground. Yeah. Um, and that's just it. I think it's he's trying to make that, he's trying to make them appear eerie or creepy or unsettling not just because and not even just because they look like teeth or something but because they are inverting the very purpose of these communicative landmarks yeah that is an interesting connection you sound like my advisor whenever i pitched <laughs> mm. <laughs> well charlie i think i i have to keep the promise that i made uh, a few episodes ago um, I promise to talk more about stars, and I think this is the perfect chapter to do so. Yeah. Speaking of stars, how about you give us a five-star rating on iTunes? Those are <laughs> this podcast. And you know what? I'll is feel that... more hopeful if you do it. 
Is that not what you were going to talk about? Is that not what you meant by talking about stars? <laughs> well, you know, this other thing about stars, um, hmm. Tolkien, in his book, The Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> so, uh, before I mention that stars are often representations of hope, because they're something that are far above the mortal concerns of the world, they're something that are bright, and light is often positive, and so something you can look at and feel it's, it's above and outside of your, your concerns. There's always hope. And here we see Frodo when he, when they are enveloped by this, this mist and Frodo loses his companions, he starts looking for his, for his friends. And the line is, he looked up and saw with surprise that faint stars were appearing overhead. And so he's, you know, he's looking for his friends and he hears a cry. And so he starts for it. And the line is, and even as he went forward, the mistress rolled up and thrust aside and the starry sky was unveiled. And I think this is something that's, you know, we can connect last chapter when we were talking about some, maybe a criticism of what Tom Pompadil represents as their sense of inaction. We see here in this chapter where Frodo begins to look for his friends and when he hears somebody and he decides to go for help, that's him taking an action in the world. That's when the stars are revealed. And that's when you see this. I mean, it's hope, right? So he is taking action in the world, and that's what's producing, you know, or allowing him to see hope. You also see the the Barrow White as a, sh- a tall, dark figure, like a shadow against the stars. The Barrow White has this... I almost see him connected to um, inaction. I mean, you see the uh, how the, the hobbits are, when they're captured, they are resting. They're doing nothing, really. They're clad in gold and, you know, beautiful things. But they're really just, they're not doing much. And I feel like thats this is kind of just a connection of how important action is. Well, what's, we talked last episode, really the past couple of episodes, about Bombadil representing a kind of inaction in his own way. And one thing I sort of think we sort of held off on talking about until we got to it, which is now, he does, he's pretty powerful and really helpful against these Barrow Whites. It, it just to address it here, I think you and I both agree, he is immensely powerful, and he is in the end good. I mean, he is in the end going to help the characters, but what's telling is this guy has the power to drive out the whites, and he does in this case. But I mean, why doesn't he permanently? Why are they there in the first place? Why didn't he take care of them a long time ago? So I, I think it still fits in with our interpretation of Bombadil. There's actually kind of a nice progression here with Frodo. The last time that Tom Bombadil came to their aid, Frodo was completely ineffective in helping his friends and then ran out and was just shouting, help, help. And in this case, Frodo attacks the, you know, finds the courage inside himself and attacks the, the white first. And then afterwards says, oh, okay, well now, now I actually call for help. And it's kind of a nice progression of him gaining ability to do things on his own. What does the chapter even actually answer? Though what the Barrow Whites are, they are wiggets, Charlie. Oh well, thank you. That doesn't help me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's interesting that the the name Barrow White, the the word white comes from it's it's Old English, a uh, wicht, Old English wicht that'd be spelled W I H T, uh, and in Old English it would have just meant uh, any kind of person or creature, uh, and so these are like Barrow people. Right, the barrow who dudes. lives in the barrows, the barrow dudes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. From now on, 
I'm only calling them the Barrow Dudes the rest of the <laughs> rest of this episode. So they're the Barrow Dudes, the people who the dudes who live in the Barrows. And I think it is kind of interesting that because of Tolkien, though, and I think because of these creatures, it does seem that that word has now come to mean spirit in in modern language and modern fantasy. I know they're at least used in other. I think Dungeons and Dragons used them at some yeah. point. There's some kind of video games, here. you know, every fantasy. The white is a some type yeah. of ghost. Some type of ghost, which is yeah, which um was not the, really the case until Tolkien. Although if I shouldn't get too nerdy with this, but <laughs> uh, that old. Well, English, you do have your own Lord of the Rings podcast, but, so let's like so you, you might as well what? double down. <laughs> yeah, I'm doubling down. Uh, <laughs> as I recall, that old English "wicht" does mean uh just a person or a creature but in other germanic languages it came to mean some kind of spirit oh uh quite a bit long ago quite a while ago and the connection here being that you know in the uh a lot of these old languages you see a connection between the idea of living things and the idea of spirits because it's spirits that make something living because in order to be animated you have a spirit right i mean animate coming from the latin animus like the spirit that's within you that makes you living and uh so in a lot in one way you could say Tolkien just brought it back to what it maybe it ultimately was a long long time ago either way it, yeah well, I, I think actually there's something interesting there is that the the whites here have some sort of they are not just some uh, an evil force so that they themselves mm. may have some agency or um, or used to have agency before they turn into their current forms yeah, it does seem it does imply that they're not allied with Sauron, but it does imply that they're allied with Morgoth. Am I remembering this correctly? I think it does. I think you're right about that. Because he's he talks about the Dark Lord, but it's not. Let me find it. I'm not gonna be able to find it. Yeah, we might have to put a hold in that conversation. I I do I. F- because I don't have it marked, and maybe I should have, but regardless, I, I feel like there's something in there, which, again, you wouldn't have necessarily caught if you read this in the 1950s, but we can catch now. I, I feel like there's some hint in here that there is, that they are connected to greater evils, like Morgoth, but I don't remember what was giving me that vibe, so I will have to check that later. So we're running out of time a little bit. Let's let's go over some of our favorite lines from, from this chapter. Yeah, just just a fair warning. I think this is going to be our longest episode. (laughs) Well, my favorite line, and I actually have quite a bit to say about this, so... (laughs) I'm going to go through the etymology of each word in this sentence. Is that too dirty? Should I not do that? (laughs) You know what? Go ahead. (laughs) Is that wrong? Um, My favorite line, though, is first paragraph of the whole chapter. Pivotal paragraph where Frodo is in Bombadil's home. He hasn't left yet. And he has a dream. Or is it a dream? That's what's interesting. So the paragraph goes like this. That night they heard no noises, but either in his dreams or out of them, he could not tell which, Frodo heard a sweet singing running in his mind, a song that seemed to come like a pale light behind a gray rain curtain, and growing stronger to turn the veil all to glass and silver, until at last it was rolled back, and the far green country opened before him under a swift sunrise. Now, uh, spoiler alert, this is the exact same 
not the exact same lines, but the, the basic structure and basic lines that you will see again in the very, very last chapter of the entire book when Frodo is sailing to the Undying Lands. And here they are showing up in this first paragraph of this little chapter at the beginning in some kind of dream. Although Tolkien, again, kind of emphasizes this was in his dreams or out of them, and he couldn't tell which. I think that's really interesting. But what I want to start talking about here is, so this is some kind of vision then of the Undying Lands, right? That, that must be what the far green country is. And just in case someone's listening to this and hasn't read the whole book already and you're just listening along with us <laughs> as we go through, the Undying Lands are these, uh, I mean, I don't remember the in-universe explanation, but they're these special great places where you get to go and everything's blissful and Frodo gets to heal and all this stuff. It's basically heaven, but not technically really. Like, I know it's not technically heaven within Tolkien's universe, but, you know, effectively, right? It's paradise. Yes. Maybe it's Eden if you'd rather than heaven, but still. Great, nice place in an almost like supernatural way. Like, nobody gets to go there unless you have done something super special. What strikes me about the imagery here is the uh, gray rain curtain and how it, it gets turned to glass. Uh, there's a sense here that it, you know, what's not allowing Frodo or any living being on Middle Earth for that matter to sort of interface with this Eden or heaven is that it's behind this rain curtain, right? Like everything you're seeing is behind this rain curtain, but it gets turned to glass and then they can see it and they can, as we'll see at the very end of the whole book, go there, right? And, and in a sense, that's the real world. Uh, C.S. Lewis actually used a really similar image in his own book, the last of the Narnia books, The Last Battle. He was describing how, at the, this is toward the end of the book, when he has his characters go into a sort of rebuilt Narnia, except he says it's different from the old Narnia, and he says it's different in this way. He says, you may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound away among mountains. And in the wall of that room, opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. In the sea in the mirror, or the valley in the mirror, were in one sense just the same as the real ones, yet at the same time, they were somehow different. Deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story. In a story you have never heard but very much want to know. So you see the recurring image here of the, the thing you see in the mirror is actually the true world that we are seeing a uh, sort of poor man's version of it, right? So, so Middle Earth itself is sort of a poor man's version of these undying lands. And only once the gray rain curtains pulled back, do we get to see like glass through to the other side. But what interests me in both those authors, as far as that image goes, is that it seems to almost contradict a uh, famous biblical image coming from Paul in his letter to the Corinthians, the New Testament, where he talks about how he says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. And when he says the then there, he means when we're all in the afterlife and we're all in heaven with, with Jesus. So Paul in the New Testament seemed to think that seeing things through a mirror was inferior. That was his gray rain curtain. And it wasn't until you saw it face to face that you actually had the real thing. Whereas Tolkien and Lewis seem to have this image of it's in the mirror, it's in the glass, that that's the real thing. Hmm. Maybe those could be reconciled. 
Well, I mean, for Tolkien, at least, it seems like he's saying it's through the glass. So it's actually, it's the thing on the other side. Mm. Well, which I think Lewis is saying, too. Like, I think his his hint isn't that the image in the mirror is more real, right? It's that the mirror is giving you a glimpse of what it is. And, like, one day you'll be able to go through the mirror. It's on the like on the other side. Which, I mean, maybe could I think you could reconcile with Paul pretty easily, too, right? Like, right now we only see the mirror itself and not face-to-face beyond the mirror. Anyway. That's enough of my rambling. <laughs> I'm going to finally give our listeners a break. I'm going to turn it over to you. What's your favorite line? Well, I have two. Um, oh, one, okay. So, uh, <laughs> so I so pick it out. I pick it out Charlie goes on forever, and the um, is two favorite. That's okay. So, so the first one is just—it's a favorite line because of the language. The second one is because of the imagery. Um, so the first one is when Frodo is finally getting, you know, he's, he wakes up in, you know, in captivity and he is, sees his friends and wants to run away. And but all of a sudden he gets, you know, a, a spark of courage. And the line is, there is a seed of courage hidden, often deeply, it is true, in the heart of the fattest and most timid hobbit, waiting for some final and desperate danger to make it grow. And I just love the final and desperate danger. I think that's just such a great way to communicate how that feeling of, of just the intenseness of feeling at the, the very end and finding some hidden courage in yourself. And the second thing that I most like about this chapter is just imagery of the law, like as the hobbits are, Mary Pippin and Sam are lying clothed in treasures and, you know, white clothes. And there's a, a long sword lying across yeah. their necks and and Frodo looks at this and you know he has you know some thoughts and but then he sees something and so here's the um the line that I like he heard behind his head a creaking and scraping sound raising himself on one arm he looked and saw now in the pale light that they were in a kind of passage which behind them turned a corner round the corner a long arm was groping walking on its fingers towards Sam who was lying nearest and towards the hilt of the sword that lay upon him so just Wow, they are lying down with a sword across their necks, and around the corner is a dark, crawling hand towards the hilt of the sword, and that just does it for me. I think that's that's incredible. What what an unusual image for the book, too. I think it doesn't. It's um, dark. It's it's yeah, it's darker than normal <laughs> for the rest of the book, at least. I mean, for as much as Tolkien says, you know, capital D dark, yeah. this is thematically dark. Yeah. Was that two? Did you give two lines? That was two. Wow, I missed it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it was just hard to it was hard to keep count with all the talking <laughs> you were doing. Uh, so yeah, I guess that wraps up this episode. This is like yeah, like I said, fair warning. This is probably going to be our longest one uh, yet. Which you would not, I would not have guessed that prior to starting this podcast. If you had asked me to like put money on which one would be the longest, this would not have been on my list. All right, well, we have to wrap it up. We will see you next week as we discuss Chapter 9 at the Sign of the Prancing Pony. <laughs>